and formed a bunch of my scientific learning while I was in the Southeast, because that's real deer biology there. I mean, you, you know, it's not that, as you know, thousands of acres of corn and soybean fields, you got to dig in, do some real, real work down there. Thanks for tuning in this week's episode of Southeast Whitetail. We've got a great one lined up this week. I, I, I am super pumped to have uh, this week Matt Ross from the National Deer Association. And on top of that, I mean, coming right off the cusp of Dr. Grant Woods. So, I mean, these are two back-to-back incredible guests, super knowledgeable. And, you know, they're going to be it's, both episodes are just jam-packed with content and takeaways that you're going to listen to and implement you can have a number of takeaways that you can implement this week in the Whitetail Woods. And that's exactly what I wanted to do, you know, showcase, talk to Matt. Matt's written a number, a slew of incredible articles for the National Deer Association that I, that I love and it's just spot on. And it's kind of content that I dive into. So that's why I wanted to have Matt on. Plus, Matt's a great guy, um, super knowledgeable. I met him a couple of years ago at a National Deer Association um, event. I've been following him on social media. He, he, the kind of stuff he puts out is just, is just really, really good, really great content. Um, and he's super approachable, nice guy. And if you have any questions about, you know, what he does or the, you know, NDA, reach out to him. I mean, he, he mentions that at the, at the end of this podcast. So um, it was a great conversation. I had some questions, you know, of course, prepare like I do for most get for, for, for all my guests, but this just turned into such just a great flowing conversation that, you know, we would, I would ask one question and, and, and it would lead into five more so that I didn't have written down. I flowed very well and it's extremely timely right now with, um, the Southeast, mostly being in the meat of their season, breeding, breeding, the breeding cycles, rut, you name it. I mean, there's a lot of things you can take away. We talk about scrapes, all kinds of things. So uh, thanks for listening. And I'm hoping to get it maybe later this week, another episode out to recap um, the bucks that we killed at the farm um, last weekend. I killed a nice one and then two of my friends killed one, three down and, um, there are two more seen that hopefully we can get on this week. We've uh, got some hunts lined up this week at the farm, and hopefully we can um, have one more really good push um, before things start to slow down a little bit or get a little more challenging uh, to hunt as these as the breeding season uh, carries on. You know, a lot of the does that were you know first you know hit their first 
you know, hit their heat cycles early or the earliest, I should say, um, they should be bred by now. And so, you know, we're, you know, we're in an area with, with a very high deer density. So there's a lot of does that aren't going to be bred initially. There's not a bucks to, not enough bucks to go around. So that's why our breeding season lasts a little bit longer. And then of course, uh, you know, you, you, you may start to see later on in November, this month being November 1st today, you might start to see some doe fawns. Um, I believe Matt mentions mentions in this podcast that a, a, a doe fawn needs to reach 65 pounds um, its first fall to reach sexual maturity. And so when that happens, um, you're going to have a little second little wave of, um, of the rut, which um, just to clarify as the founder National Deer Association has written this book. It's not a second rut. It's a continuation of the breeding cycle. So it's just a continuation of the rut. It's not a second rut. (laughs) That really stood out to me when I read it and I liked it. So thanks for listening. I appreciate all the feedback I've I've received. Please leave a rating and review and let's get right to it with Matt Ross, National Deer Association. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Southeast Whitetail. I have on the line today, Matt Ross from the National Deer Association. Matt, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Mark. I'm, I'm super excited to be on uh, Southeast Whitetail. I, I uh, have been following what you're doing and you, you're providing some good content to folks. And uh, I'm honored, honestly, to, to be one of your guests. Well, I, I appreciate your time because it's people like you that um, help make this you know podcast good. Because if it was just up to me... Um, probably won't have anybody listening. So it's good to have great guests. And so have you been? I, last time I saw you, Whitetail Week in 2020. And that was um, <laughs> that was right on the cusp of everything blowing up. You've been doing yeah. well? Do, doing well. Everybody's healthy at home. Uh, that trip I remember well for a lot of reasons. Uh, yeah. I remember uh, going to the airport after that weekend. Not sure what was going to, what Atlanta airport was going to be like, but, uh, exactly. you know, hit the fast forward button. It's, t- it's fall of 22. Um, for your guests, I don't live in the Southeast. I live, uh, uh in the Northeast and, uh, colors could not be more brilliant than right now. It is, it is full on fall and, uh, I'm loving every day of it. Nice. So you can tell the audience what you do for the national deer association and a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, so, I am the director of conservation for NDA. Uh, I've worked for um, NDA and formerly the Quality Deer Management Association for over 15 years, uh, coming on almost 17 years. Uh, And I've served in various roles, but right now what I do is I oversee our conservation department's field staff. Um, They all have different programs that they're in charge of or our cost share positions with state agencies. Um, And so their roles and responsibilities have to directly report to me and I have to make sure they're doing what they need, what they need to do. Um, Those include our deer steward course, our land certification program, co-ops, private land co-ops, DMAP working with states on DMAP, that's deer management assistance uh, programs and CWD sampling, all a whole bunch of um, whole suite of activities that our staff works on um, and and much more. And then I'm also personally responsible for um, our public lands conservation initiative. Uh, we, We announced with the merger of NDA and our new strategic 
plan, um, an initiative of improving a million acres of public land. Uh, QDMA, been nice. here long enough. You know, we do a lot of private land uh, content, education and outreach. Uh, most whitetails are hunted on private land and we, we continue to do that. But um, with the need to recruit new hunters, a lot of hunter, new hunters don't necessarily own land. They, they hunt public land. There's a, there's a huge tie-in and not only the need of actually improving public land and working with partners, but to get those new hunters some positive experiences. So that's something I oversee as well. Um, and, and, and more than that, but those are, those are my day-to-days. That's great. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. You're in, you're in charge of a lot and, um, a lot of responsibilities. That's great. Um, so 15 to, is it 15, 17 years? Uh, coming up on 17 years. 17 years. I was hired in 2006. Um, and uh, prior to that, I, I worked uh, as a, I'm a certified wildlife biologist and a licensed forester. Prior to that, I consulted, um, worked for a, a private consulting company that provided recommendations to landowners for forest management and wildlife improvements. And uh, I don't, I don't do that anymore. I haven't for, since I've been working for um, NDA, but um, a lot of the programs and content that we put out is directly related to that, giving advice. You know, mm-hmm. people want to improve their situation. I did that professionally um, for a handful of years before I was hired and um, continue to provide that that education and outreach to people through that's, through our membership. That's awesome. I mean, I, I know you know this, obviously, uh, but, you know, for, the force you work uh, with private landowners just goes hand in hand with hunting and conservation. I mean, it's especially if you have turkey, you know, lower turkey numbers, but just even or even lower whitetail numbers. And you and you you know work on farm recruitment. There's so much with forestry that you can blend uh, for wildlife. So right off the bat, can you think of anything um, that has changed in the whitetail world that you would never have thought in a million years? since the time you started. So if you started roughly 17 years ago, National Deer Association, has there anything just changed in the whitetail world that rewinding 17 years, you would never have thought that we would be right here with whatever issue? Well, the first thing that jumps out of my mind is chronic wasting disease. Yeah. I mean, uh, honestly, since the mid 2000s, how many states now have it? It's up to 30 states. Um, it's crazy. You know, we knew it was gonna spread um, I wouldn't have guessed within 15 years it has spread as much as it's done. I mean, it spreads slowly, and it's for those that know don't know the disease. It's an always fatal disease that deer have, uh, that deer get, and they contract it between uh, direct and indirect contact through bodily fluids and other things. But it's it's not a good situation. It's and it's spreading, and uh, I wish it wasn't. I wasn't seeing the amount of advance of it in the 15 plus years that I work for the organization. That's, that's the first thing that jumps out to my mind. You know, probably another thing is uh, on a positive sense is how engaged hunters are yeah. uh, really, you know, yeah. on policy stuff, um, you know, caring about there's all through social media, I'm on social media, you know, like being able to share when something's not good or when mm-hmm. something's good. Um being able to, you know, when I first started, Mark, really, I mean, not to pat ourselves on the back, but we were one of the the mainstays of content, like deer management content. There were other ones out there, but it is 
deluded is not the right word, but there are so many places that you can learn about, you know, deer management, deer biology, and that's good. I mean, it's, uh, we shouldn't own it that, you know, a nonprofit shouldn't own that content. It's, you can find it online, you can find it on print. Um, and that's mostly because that's a supply and demand thing. Hunters are hungry to learn about forest management or food plots or trail cameras or how big a buck can get by age, you know, all those or where they go. I know we're going to talk about deer movements to a degree. I mean, just just the engagement of hunters today versus that's a positive um, versus back in the 2000s. Absolutely. I mean, it's amazing. Um, it's amazing the amount of content that's out there, um, you know, through uh, conservation nonprofits like National Deer Association that, you know, is, is putting stuff out there for their members and, you know, different biologists. Uh, I mean, there, there's so many biologists out there that are working for major universities or, you know, and they're putting out content. You know, that, that's I, like, you know, on their own, that's just readily available to anyone. It's, it's fascinating. But then it's also that, right, it, it's just amazing that, that, that are at, you know, my fingertips in my pocket on my phone, as opposed to, I, I, you know, I remember you probably do like the late 90s where like, I, that's when I was in high school, late 90s. And I was, I was really hunting on my own for the first time because I, because I had a, because I, because I could drive myself to hunt, even though I wasn't really, you know, had, had some limitations as far as how I could hunt. But anyways, when someone would pull up to deer camp or your, or, or like a new hunting lease and they had a big blow up of an aerial map, you know, like it was like, wow, where did you get that? How in the world did you get that? And it's blown up and it's printed and it's color and we can look at it. And now everyone's got the aerial map for the most part in their, in their phone. Yeah, but there's Google Earth or One X. I mean, it's just it's amazing how things have changed. It's we we as a as a um, species, I guess we we ask lots of questions. You know, the why does that work that way, and want to learn more. And um, you know, back then, not to sound old, but back then, you know, a lot of the the species specific conservation groups like at the time QDMA or Natural Wild Turkey Federation, or Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, all of them, they had that we have memberships and we were one of the main streams of at least providing that research, you know, the, the science-based, university-based research on those species and members joined to get that. Um, I'd say even at one of the improvements that it seems like one of those things that uh, is a strange attaboy or pat on the back, but I think today state and provincial wildlife agencies are even doing a, a you know, a bang up job on providing content. Whereas oh, back yeah. then, um, I don't think they did a very good job. There, there's still some states that could do better. And I still think that most hunters, they trust their state agencies, but they get information from other sources besides their wildlife agencies yeah. um, as kind of the first line of defense or where they go to. Um, but really, I've seen a, at least even in the last five years, um, our wildlife agencies are doing a, an awesome job of providing, you know, what's going on with regulations or what's going on with deer or turkeys or, you know, whatever this, the game species is in their states. And uh, you got you got to. I mean, hunters, are, they want that information. And, uh, you know, that's another another change. That's right. So speaking of information, let's get right 
right into it. Um, you, know, you of course have been on my radar uh, to have this podcast, but I, but you know, when I, before sort of asking people like you um, or had Lindsay Thomas one two weeks ago and um, Dr. Grant Woods last um, we, when you're listening to this, the, the episode with Dr. Grant Woods will have already released. Um, but I, you know, I wanted to get this podcast kind of going and get some level of credibility before I started asking people like y'all, so, you know, so I could, um, get some good guests. So anyways, you've been on my radar, but then you wrote this article, the two best times to see deer. Um, and I know that's not the whole title. And I was just thinking, I, I got to get mad on. I mean, this, this article is spot on and it's what I, talk about a lot and you know it, and maybe i see it a little bit differently because i hunt throughout because our season is so long um in south carolina in the lower portion of south carolina so i start hunting in august and so i'm hunting that that true summer pattern mm-hmm. and then i'm hunting when that september you know shift they call it and then i'm hunting when people when things slow down in october you know this this dub the loss like i and it's just, it's not because I'm a great hunter, it's just because it's just where it's just a product of where I hunt. I kind of see that deer are adapting to the hunter pressure. And I know some states, if, if they open right now, like there's states from across, across the South is opening right now in, in October. So there may be, maybe they're not seeing that shift because they're out, you know, doing food plots and bush hogging and trimming stands and all that stuff, all that's pressure in the woods but it's not on the deer stands and maybe the hunter's not really realizing. Um, so anyways, can we talk about this article? Sure. Yeah. I, um, you know, we, our entire conservation staff and communication staff, um, that, that is what we do. I mean, uh, uh, we, we try to provide information and we're always brainstorming different topics that are relevant to new hunters or even, you know, seasoned veterans. So we provide a, a wide array of topics, and I don't remember when we brainstormed this one, but, um, you know, going back to the, to the conversation we were having a minute ago about all of the, all of the avenues of information today and how hunters are hungry for it. One of the, one of the things that is a flaw in that is there are a bunch of kind of myths that are uh, perpetuated through, um, popular media that people just talk about without any substantial substantiating evidence of it and uh one one of the things that you hear routinely is that you know how weather affects deer movements um another one is that hunting pressure deer are going to go nocturnal and honestly even mark in the last like 24 hours 48 hours i've been on social media and seeing comments of people saying deer go nocturnal and uh you know that that one thing about you just bite your tongue yeah well no i mean i i I do but um said you know let's write an article about it deer don't really go nocturnal how how to approach this how do we approach this and so um it is uh just the mountain of evidence that shows deer activity is pretty routinely um driven by dawn and dusk they're crepuscular i know that's a big fancy word biologist word but they are crepuscular, meaning that they're most active at dawn and dusk. Doesn't matter what time of year. Doesn't matter what kind of hunting pressure is going on. Um, you know, deer are going to be active during those hours. So, 
Um, so the article is about that in essence is that, and I provided three different examples from around the country um, based on deer that had GPS collars, um, one that was a deer vehicle collision data, one was mm. trail camera data um, of over 5 million camera, uh, camera photos that all three of those examples, three different data sets that shows peaks and deer activity at dawn and dusk. Um, and so that's, that's what, what I wrote about. I, it's, it's well said, it's to the point, it, you don't mince any words. And when I shared it, um, on the Southeast Whitetail Instagram account, um, I think I put in there, like, if you read one article this hunting season, read this, because I, I know sometimes I, someone might think I'd be a dead horse on the soapbox, but it's when you learn, um, deer behavior and, and the whys and how, like why they're doing something, how they're doing something. Um, you can, that's how you become a better hunter. It, it's not so much, I mean, it, this is just my opinion. And so that article is spot on. And someone might re, you read it in a really kind of, it, it, to me, it just, it, it just lays it all out. You got to get out and hunt and it, and it kind of brings in, it should bring in uh, a level of woodsmanship, you know, hunting the deer is, is part of like, is in my opinion, and this is how I hunt and how I, how I'm wired is that the deer are going to do what they're going to do. And that sounds like a very stupid statement, but they've been around for a long time and they're mm -hmm. like one of the ultimate survival prey species. And they, 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 and they thrive in a lot of locations. So they're going to do what they're going to do to reproduce. Cause that's what, you know, that that's what they have to do and they're not going to wait for a certain kind of weather condition they're not going to wait for a certain kind of moon um temperature wise they're doing it and if you're the hunter you got to get out there and pursue them mm -hmm. and you got to get out there and chase them and it just you know and and it's um so i i that's why i just i love that article because sometimes people you know start splitting hairs and they try to make things more complicated than what it really is and um yeah, I think I have a statement in there. I appreciate the compliments. I, I, I think I have a statement in there about, um, you know, deer are what they're ultimately doing is changing where where they are spending their time, not when. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, yes deer do um, become more active during daylight hours during the rut than they do. I mean, you can see it in one of the graphs but there's still a peak at dawn and dusk. And, and it is because they are a prey species and they're most common predators or they've evolved around predators that are active at those other times or when their vision is not as good. And so they've, they've changed. There's, there's some exceptions to that. And I've actually been called out of, uh, on, on that at a professional deer conference where I said it was ironclad and there's nothing else other than this. Um, there are examples of that in Florida. The Florida panther is active during um, certain times uh, of the day. Yeah. And so they, in that isolated population, deer are more active in the middle of the day, but that's not ubiquitous. It's not across the country. You're talking yeah. about 30 million deer out there across all these different states and provinces. Deer active at dawn and dusk. And that's what the data, you know, shows. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's spot on. I mean, you know, we as hunters, we are a predator. And deer, whitetails are smart. You know, they're smart, we're predators, and they're going to avoid us. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, you know, we're hunting them and they're trying to avoid us as best as possible. Um, yeah, so check that article out. 
deerassociation.com. And, and then when you read that article, you can look up uh, all of Matt's other articles. There was one last year about the, uh, this, it was a science related article. Um, like the, the importance of science in hunting. Oh yeah. Yeah. I believe that was, um, that was last year. I think you wrote that there's, there's all kinds of, I mean, I, those are the ones um, that, those are the kind of articles that is love, you know, just, we have so, we have so much related stuff. I, I, I uh, Lindsay Thomas jr. Our, um, communications, our chief communications officer who you've had as a guest, um, just had a video, um, that came out about hunting pressure. Um, yes. Yeah. You know, talking about hunting pressure. It's an excellent video. I mean, our, our uh, YouTube channel is full of that kind of stuff. Um, talking about how deer in a study, um, Pitt McCoy was a researcher. It was on Brosnan Forest about how deer reacted um, yeah, that's a to good hunting pressure and how long it took for the them to kind of go back to quote unquote normal. It took, you know, three, three or so days. So once you hunt a stand you can expect deer to do something different for about three days and they had um tons of good research on that there's another video on our youtube channel about um human the the influence of human no related noises in the in the woods there's a yeah. researcher i think it was uga uh, university of georgia played recordings uh and had a trail camera there of people um, but they also had recordings of um, different animals and just watched mm -hmm. how deer reacted to it with no person around or no other animals, just the voice, the audio recording of it. That's a neat, neat research project about, uh, you know, our influence on deer. And uh, man, that's the stuff that really I love too. Um, I'm a true, you know, deer nerd, as you will. Um, I love science. Um you know, I wouldn't do all this stuff if I didn't. Uh, I love science and I love hunting. And so the two combine, I want to make sure that I'm better at my pursuits, right? Like I, I want to, I want to make sure not only am I efficient, but like I can have higher success rates. And the only way to do that is learn from mistakes. And that is science. That's the article I, I wrote about, mm -hmm. you know, is we do that every day. You go and make a mistake at work you know, or you're going hunting and you do something, you're like, man, I wish I didn't do that. So then you, cha you, you change, you change whatever you did. Yeah. So that's just the human brain say, using science to say, okay, that, that did not work. Let's try something different. Yeah. And, uh, that's, that's what we try to provide. Yeah. I, I love that. I, I tell people, I mean, I, I make mistakes every day because I do. And I, I, I just to, just to piggyback on that, Dr. Grant Woods, um, mentioned something way back, you know, a while early on in his career, he developed some type of like moon type calendar early in his career. And he, and, and they were selling it, I think through a, uh, some type of media, uh, outlet. And then after I think it was a, I think it was a CD if I remember right. He, yeah, yeah I need to go back. Um, and I, so like, if you're, I haven't put, I'm going to publish that or not publish. I'm going to upload that episode today. Um, I, I got to go back and listen to it. But yeah, he mentioned that. And then he mentioned that um, all of a sudden the you know, GPS collars came out 
and there was GPS studies and they were, I think he was, you know, cause he was, I think at the time tied in with, um, I know he went to the university of Georgia and also did some work, did some, did some uh, study in at Clemson, a uh, degree mm-hmm. from Clemson. So I'm not sure where he was. I think it was Georgia, but then they were starting to getting the GPS data in and they realized that the moon, what he was writing, you know, writing about, or the moon calendar was just so, somewhat debunked by the GPS. And so he, so he scrapped it. And he was, and that's the point is that, you know, in his career, there was times where you have to scrap things because, you know, research changes. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, so speaking of research, let's, I want to dive into the rut because right now in the Southeast, um, most places are, are already in pre-rut. I know in South Carolina, where I am at least next week, usually around the 15th, 15th to the 20th is usually when bucks, really big bucks start to show themselves. Um, and I, I personally think based on activity and firsthand experience, seeing bucks that I think some of our does are already, you know, hitting the first heat cycle um, about that time. So the rut, I, I have a question. I, I'm, I've, I've heard this over the years about, you know, during the rut, of course, before the rut really fires up, before the first heat cycle hits, some young bucks are bumping does, and they're just done. They're just young, and they just don't know. But I, I've heard people talk, hunters talk over the all my life about that older bucks will kind of wait. You know that the younger bucks, maybe a one, two, three-year-old will start, you know, kind of chase the first does in heat, do some breeding, but the older ones, the four plus bucks will kind of hang back and wait. Is there any truth to that, or, or is there's really just that, as far as the age class of buck, is there any correlation to them pursuing heat, you know, does in heat? No. Uh, I I don't think there's any relationship to the age of the buck. I mean, based on the research that I know, yeah. um, it really has to do with resources and the individual deer and kind of what the population's doing. So, um, you know, one of the things right now that we're starting to see, there's two things that drive deer behavior, really. Movements, what they, what they need is... Yeah the need to eat or need to feed and the need to breed. And that's really it. I mean, there are other things that influence what they do on a day-to-day or hour by hour, but they are driven by those things. And for the most part of the year, it's the need to feed. So they're focusing on what they're, they're, they have to eat a lot of food every day. Um, When you're starting to see pre-rut activity you know, when my brain kind of went to this thought as you were starting to talk about this, and I'll, I'll touch on this first, is that, you know, we start to see some of the signpost behavior. Um, and Grant did a bunch of the original research on some of this stuff, which was really good. So did Dr. Carl Miller. Um, but, you know, we see a peak in rubbing. You know, people are looking for rubs in the woods. deer rubbing their antlers on trees and saplings. Um, that that usually precedes or happens before a peak in scrapes. They both are happening around the same time. Okay. But scrapes are where the deer are pawing away the ground. Um, but the peak of scraping behavior usually happens uh, roughly about, no matter where you are, about a week or less than the peak of breeding. And so you can use that like evidence through scouting of, you know, how much rubbing is happening, how much scraping is happening. Um, 
the peak and rubbing will 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 happen and then a peak and scraping and they both continue on throughout the rut but when you start to see a lot of scrapes yeah. and they start to tail off the peak of the rut is about to hit within within three to five days um gotcha and mid-october so today we're recording on the 12th you know um, growing up, I couldn't even start hunting until October 15th, but our state now has an October 1st opening day and it, um, for the southern half of the state and a, a September 27th opening day for the northern half of the state. So our season has been open, not long. Um, but growing up as a kid, you know, talking about that, the same thing from your perspective, um, you know, it used to always open on, for me, on October 15th. And by then, uh, deer are already starting to, to show some of those behaviors. You know, you don't yeah. really start to see that late summer pattern. Um, uh, and go ahead. So when the scrapes shut down, the leaves- They don't really covered... shut down. They just peak and then they kind of like subside a little bit and they tail off. You'll start, you'll still see scrapes throughout, you know, November- at least where the rut is in the middle of November, you know, mm-hmm. th- th- it'll continue, but there is a clear peak to that activity just prior to the peak of breeding. Gotcha. Yeah. And so the peak of the rut activity, is that what you called it? Yeah. Or breeding peak of breeding. Okay. You no. Know, so, so signpost behavior scrapes, rubs, those kinds of things. They're leaving their calling card in the woods to let other right. deer know that they're around, let them know their breeding status. And so that's happening at an elevated rate, you know, where I live. Yeah. It's, it's this time of year that's starting to go up pretty high, but it's not going to peak for another couple of weeks. Yeah. You know, I expect probably peak of scraping behavior to happen first week in November. Um, but it's starting to elevate mid, mid October. Um, and then the peak of breeding when deer are actually physically breeding with each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's happening in late October. There's a, yeah. you know, going back to the deer nerd comment, you know, there's a bell-shaped curve. That's starting mid-late October. Deer are starting to breed. Bucks on top of does. That's what I'm talking about. Um, where, yeah. where they're going to have a fawn from that event. Um, that peaks uh, in many parts of the country, second week of, of November, you know, third week of November, it's mid November for a lot of the country, but not everywhere throughout the Southeast. It's all over the place. I mean, there's yeah. peaks of breeding in February, uh, January, you know, there's yeah. depending on where you live. Um, I've, I've thought about this a lot when we're, you know, cleaning a deer at our skinning shed. And I know I'm I'm not trying to sound crass or anything, but, uh, you know, Dr. Grant Woods talked about uh, the fetal scale that uh, Joe Hamilton um, created. But if someone were to shoot a doe right now or shoot a doe next week and they're cleaning it, are there any physical signs? Of course, the fetus is not already in, but is there any physical signs? I've always wondered this, um, that a hunter could tell when they're cleaning the doe that she is in heat or she has already been bred just so the hunter can know like, Hey, there's some breeding going. I mean, is there any physical attributes when you have that doe in the skinning shed that you could know? Not this early. Um, I think it's like, well, for perspective, um, 
the majority of fetal growth happens in the third trimester, which is in the spring, which makes mm-hmm. sense because the deer is still trying to survive the hunting season, the rut and winter. Yeah. And so most of growth of a fetus, I think it's like 60 to 70% of it happens in literally the third trimester. Oh, wow. And then a fawn, a, a fetus has to be at least 40 days developed for you to be able to measure it, to be able to determine when breeding occurred. And it has to be at least 60 days developed, which is two months for you to be able to determine sex of that fetus, male or female. So think about that for 40, if if it's got to be 40 days of age for it to be big enough to actually put it on that scale, Mm -hmm. that's, that's pretty long. I mean, so if the first breeding is happening and it does, you know, in, in locations, the first does that are becoming in heat in mid to late October, it happens. That's the the left side of the bell-shaped curve. Um, you're still in days like one to seven, not days 40. So there's really mm-hmm. very, very, very small chance that you'll see any evidence while gotcha. dressing. It's just something every, about this time every year, I just went to skin shot. I, just, I think about it, um, not the, yeah. So um, another question about the rot. So a lot of people are very are familiar with um, a second heat cycle. And I, and I, um, I think I read it. It must've been Joe Hamilton's book. I've got it right here. Fire, fire pot stories. I'm pretty sure it's in Joe, in Joe's book. I read, it. I know, I know I read that he, that he, I know I, this is something he wrote that I read is that it's not, he calls it, it's not a second rut. It's, it's a continuation. You know, when the, when a doe's not bred the first heat cycle, she will cycle back in. Was it 28 days? Yeah, about that. About 28. Okay, yeah. so is there any, I haven't, I, I, I don't consume everything. I don't see everything, obviously, but is there any resource, research, and there's not, what's your opinion on the a buck's health? You know, so, and of course, you got the doe's health too. And, and that's something that I would really love to do a whole podcast on like the mother doe and like what she goes through, gestation, giving birth to a fawn, raising fawns. And then she's raising, if she's a matriarch, she's raising and uh, not raising, running a doe group. I mean, she's got yeah. a whole doe group she's running and then she's going to heat and she's got the doe group. She's got her fawns and then she's got bucks pursuing her. She's, I mean, there's a, there's so much going on with a doe, but the buck bucks, you know, we all know, most people know about the weight they cut. Mm-hmm. If you if you were if your butt doe ratio is out of whack and you've got way more does and then and you've got does that are hitting a second heat cycle or maybe even a third on rare occasions or you have the doe fawn you've got a healthy environment even though your butt to doe ratio is out of whack you've got doe fawns that are hitting a heat cycle kind of later on the fall what about these bucks that have been triggered? Um, you know, they're in that rut mode, they're in that breeding season mode by the first doe that goes into heat, but more does just keep going into heat and they're being run down and they're not eating. Is there, I mean, how detrimental is that when your doe herds out of balance and then you have bucks or do you think bucks are kind of tapering off? Like they've been running so hard, they just, or are they just going nonstop? It's it's location that this, so the, the impact on bucks is going to be location specific. So, you know, we're from two different parts of the country, yeah. you know, where winter is bad, 
um, certainly that has that has the effect on it where they really do need to like start rebuilding and shut shut down some of that activity like from where I'm from. But you know that said, I think there is definitely a some implications on later ruts on bucks. It's less than we think. Um, partly Good. because Good. yeah, par- partly because bucks desire to breed. You know, like I said earlier, they have the need to feed and the the need to breed. Yeah, that, that's right. That's yep. that's driven specifically by photo period, and what photo period is is the amount of daylight, the amount of sunlight in a twenty four hour period that drives so many things in the deer world. And testosterone is directly elevated levels of testosterone and their desire to breed is triggered by shortening daylight in the fall. Um, not necessarily from does going into heat, although that that those pheromones in the air help prime them, yeah. but they have their own stuff going on, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, as right now, I mean, mid-October, daylight's starting to get shorter, um, testosterone is directly increased and I can go into the biology of that if, if interested, but that all you need to know is that is a direct relationship. And on the flip side, at the end of the rut or the end of the breeding season, daylight is starting to get longer and testosterone decreases. So you may have does that are going into a second estrus or fawns that are becoming big enough that they can go into estrus or in rare cases, you know, third estrus. But the buck has their own thing going on. Testosterone is decreasing, you yeah, know, at that yeah. time. And so you may have does going into heat, but honestly, they don't care. <laughs> Some of them, <laughs> they, they, they're not paying attention to that because yeah. their desires are not matching what the does are needing uh, yeah. to be bred. And so I don't think it happens as much as people um, talk about. And depending Good. on where your listeners coming in, if they're Southeastern uh, listeners, you also don't have the risk of, da- you know, damaging winter, severe winters. So even if they did match up with a doe going into estrus and they still mm-hmm. had testosterone levels high enough that they wanted to breed, um, and they, they took their shift away from feeding and were still trying to chase does around, they're not going to be in a situation that's so dire that they're not going to recover because yeah. they're not hitting major winter storms to the point where they can't get out of their own way. You know, Northern Great Lakes, New England, where, you know, parts where, where they have a clock ticking and, and snow on the ground and they have to survive. So I would not, I would not put too much stock in that, that, that thought that, that bucks are dying everywhere because of these late estruses. Yeah. The bigger concern is that if it's happening, is that you are having fawns born that are yeah. not at the right time, um, oh, and then it, that that's a that's a cycle where then fawns are born late, and they get big enough that they're going into estrus, and at times that are really out of whack. You know, mm-hmm. are they getting big enough? And that's just an un- unhealthy situation. Okay, for the I, fawn. I know we gotta. Um... We, we need to start to kind of wrap this up, but you just want it. it the doe fawn that hits that heat cycle later on, you know, and later on her first fall, she's mm-hmm. only six months old or whatever it is in, in a healthy environment. I mean, how is she behind the eight ball if she's pregnant and she's, I mean, is, is the likelihood, I mean, 
it's talked about like it's a good thing because it's a sign of great of good habitat, right? But then is it really good for the deer and that fawn that's going to be born when the mother is one year old? It's but I guess she would probably remain in that doe group. It's a it's a uh, I'm going to give you this a million dollar question. Yeah, no, I was going to say I'll give you the stereotypical biologist response. It depends. It depends. <laughs> I got it. I like that. Uh, that that that's that's the that's the million dollar answer, I guess. I like that. You know, in some cases you know, super productive habitats like the Delta in Mississippi, Ohio, Iowa, you know, like very, a lot of food availability because there's just so much pro- productivity around in the, on, yeah. on the landscape, you're going to see, and for listeners that don't know this, when fawns hit a certain weight, it's not an age, they, they actually get to a certain weight around uh, about 80 pounds dressed in the North, about 65 pounds dressed, uh, you know, dress weight in the South. When they get to a certain size, they become uh, sexually active. And if you have a, um, a large percentage of that, it's driving in places that quote unquote second rut or continue rut as Joe called it. There's places like um, um, Ohio, I think, statewide Ohio data set says about 50% of their fawns actually re- reach a uh, sizable maturity that they oh. can actually go into estrus. Maybe it was Iowa, but it's, and, and, and I think it was in Iowa that about 15% of those fawns that do breed have twins, but there's just so much food availability Ooh, in those places. Man. You know, the reason I'm talking yeah. about that is that when they do have a fawn or even two fawns, they're they're landing on good ground that they have food and can recover. So that's why it depends. One of the things that Mark, you and I have talked about offline um, at Whitetail Weekend, we started you know the discussion here today about that is that if you have control over the property you hunt, whether you own it or not, and you want to make decisions based on making your situation better, you can you can affect manage that and make decisions to to alter, you know, tr- the trajectory of how healthy the deer herd is. And so yeah. you monitor it, you keep good records. You, you, like, I know you're a super fan or an avid fan of keeping good data, right? You go to back to the skin and shed and you collect data and you read it, you pay attention to it. And so if you have fawns, if you're seeing fawns breed and there's a late rut, you'll see the evidence of that. And then you can make projections or decisions on how to you know alter your hunting and what deer you shoot absolutely yeah yeah absolutely i i love this discussion and i I had not heard about um the weight the trust weight about when they might hit um sexual maturity that's awesome yeah i mean you you gotta make those adjustments um and so we we've the past number of years we've been uh trying to thin the thin the does out aggressively early um late september before even pre-rut and we've, you know, made it kind of fun. We invite friends up and have a little, I call it a dope invitational turn on that, but it's just friends and family and we make it fun. And, and I, and we, and we, and in fact, I donated um, about five deer from that to the needy. So, I mean, there's ways that you can help your deer herd and also help other people. All right. Rapid but, fire. Cause I know we need to get going. I guess before you get into rapid you. fire, I, I, that just kind of spawned off a thought for me, for those that are wondering, like, how do I know how? you know, how many deer does to kill? Um, what does that mean? You know, and, and the decisions I'll give you a quick, nice, some tidbits. Um, 
if you're in a productive, you know, relatively average product, productive environment, you know, deer are, are having fawns and they're healthy and you don't have major issues with like predation, like on fawns, you need to remove about a third, 30, 30 to 33% of the adult does to just stabilize population growth. So if you have a lot of deer out there and you need to say, you know what, we need to thin that, you just said thin the does out. If you had, uh, let's say a hundred does on your property, just to pick a number, you need to remove 30 to 33 of them um, to just make sure that the population's even, it's stable. So you do that through uh, survey techniques. You do trail camera surveys and you figure out how, how many deer are out there and how many of them are does and bucks. And you just pick a number and shoot for that. Um, if you want to really increase the, the percentage of uh, adult does that are productive, there is research out of um, Savannah River site there down, down in mm -hmm. on the Georgia, South Carolina line that shows that those that are productive that have fawns tend to be so. And so when you're out there and you're watching a, you know, a doe family group come through and you see a doe that has fawns, if you remove the one that actually has fawns, she's more likely to have fawns and to be successful rearing them in the future. On the reverse side, if you want to take a doe but not have an impact on population growth, does that have lost a fawn, so ones that are by themselves, are have a more likely or have the higher tendency to not be successful mothers or rear fawns in the future. So you can shift your decision on what doe to shoot based on, do we need to reduce deer density? Do we want to just, do I want to put some meat in the freezer and not have a major effect on it? Or honestly, the easiest way, if you need to grow your population is just stop shooting does. Like That's if you right. back off your doe shooting for like two to three years, you'll be in a place where you need to start shooting does again. Um, so that's that's, that's right. a quick quick hitting points on that. And we have a a great um, it's a, a resource on our website called the Doe Harvest Diagnosis. There's a PDF interactive PDF that you can download. It asks questions, you check boxes, and it tells you you know generally how many does you need to shoot. So there's it, there's some yeah. quick hitting facts. That's a phenomenal resource. And those are excellent points because if you want bigger bucks, if you want big antlers, if you want to see a better rut got to shoot does. I mean, there, there's so much that just ties into managing the herd and it, and it starts like what you said um, with data, you know, observational data, your harvest data from the skinning shed, and then the observational data, what hunters see on the stand. Cause that's how you get, oh, you so know, it's the cheapest, easiest thing to collect. Just how many hours were they sitting yeah. there? How many total deer, how many of them were bucks, does, fawns, and a deer you couldn't identify. If you just write that down every time you hunt, just you're there already just bring a pencil and a piece of paper and uh write down what you or record it when you get back to the truck or back to camp um there's a lot of information you can gain from that and it's free it is insane you're right it, it's insane how much information you can i mean like i mean we're, we're getting uh phone our uh, you know uh, estimate a phone recruitment rate a property and we're not biologists it's it's just we're just recording what we see all right rapid fires i know you need to go Real quick, what are, what are your 2022 hunting goals? You got some goals? Uh, this, this yes, season? I do, actually. You know, honestly, it's to get, um, we started the conversation offline this morning mm -hmm. talking about our kids, uh, to get my kids out more than I did the previous nice. two seasons. I uh, I really invested in taking new hunters out through uh, our R3 Field of Fork program the last two seasons, still doing that. 
but I feel as a parent, I've almost neglected my, my kids getting out enough and they're at an age where <laughs> they can easily tag along. So that, that is my number one goal is to get them out with me more. I love that. Uh, hunting is always better with family. Yeah. Friends too, but family, something special. All right. I'm going to ask you three questions that I ask every guest. There's no right or wrong answer, but uh, there's probably some better ones out there. Um, first question, can you recommend a book or uh, some type of media that you would just suggest someone listening, uh, a hunter, a conservationist, or someone, uh, an outdoorsman, outdoors woman uh, to consume a, a book, um, you know, um, a podcast, media platform. It can't be um, deerassociation.com. I yeah, will say uh, that. You got something different. <laughs> I'll I'll uh, I'll throw my boss and I'm this is not kissing you know what uh, <laughs> Kip Ad Kip Adams is a is a good person to follow on Instagram he yeah. he does some really good stuff on uh, on habitat management um, I know that's deer deer related um, you know an, or deer association related another another good resource that I like to uh, to follow is is the folks at Meat Eater I saw you starting to write uh, for mm -hmm. them and they're providing some some good stuff. That those are two good resources. Absolutely. Um, second question, what is just a go-to, just favorite wild game dish? It doesn't have to be venison. You know, you, you've been gone on a trip for two weeks. You've been eating out the whole time. You haven't had wild game. You're coming home. You got a freezer full of everything that you hunt, something you just look forward to, you love. It doesn't have to be an elaborate, you know, recipe. I'll give That's you two. Okay. Uh, it's always going to be venison for me. Um, <laughs> I kind of like, uh, you know, um, feel good, uh, you know, comfort of home meal is, is mm -hmm. a, just a good venison burger. Oh yeah. Um, just, just yeah. Lo love that. Um, and a little bit more, uh, off the cuff kind of a venison recipe is, uh, like to use kind of, um, uh, thin cut venison and like bone broth. Um, gonna sound really heady here but uh yeah like a pho dish which is like a hot bone broth with um you cook the venison in that Lo love that it's got you huh. know kind of soba noodles it's yeah. like a, you know a vietnamese dish soba it's nice and warm and always makes me feel good soba noodles and and uh throw in some jalapeno peppers and basil and throw some Ooh, sliced venison it's good yeah it's, it's simple need too that sounds pretty. I have never heard someone talk about that type of dish. That sounds like something I will be trying soon. I appreciate that. All right. Last question. What do you feel like? And I know you're not in the Southeast, so I will expand this. What do you feel like is a, is a, a real conservation issue right now in 2022 um, that you feel like should be on people's radars? You know, something it, it, it could be deer related or, or not, but something that like, you know, it, 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 a lot of times people throw the, throw that word around conservation, but you know, and sometimes people just use it as a buzzword, but what's something real you feel like I, should be on people's radars that maybe, well, you isn't. know what, From talking to Southeastern listeners, um, keep chronic wasting disease out of the yeah. Southeast. Yes. I mean, I, I, I don't, we don't, it was, it's been discovered in New York state, but a long time ago. Um, it's on our door again in Pennsylvania. Um, I, I do not have to hunt in a CWD area or have to abide by those, but I've done that traveling. Um, you know, there are states in the Southeast that have it. And, uh, but right now, if you look at the map, uh, the national map, um, it's the Northeast and the Southeast that are the oh, least scary, you know, it's, and keep it out. And what I mean by that is if you travel, the, the best thing you can do 
is if you're traveling to hunt to a place that does have it, um, do not bring a whole carcass back. That's the easiest thing, you know, just bring yeah. the meat back, follow the rules, um, and taxidermy related stuff too. You know, I know you want to bring, if you shoot a big buck, you want to bring that, that whole head back. You can't, you got to bring just a skull cap clean back. Um, and then second thing is follow policy, uh, you know, stuff that has to do with chronic wasting disease. Yeah. Um, there's other avenues that it spreads that, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I hate to go into that bucket, Mark, but that's, that's the thing. I mean, most people hunt deer. If you're a hunter, yeah. 80% yeah. of hunters hunt deer. And, well, yeah. It, and we don't need chronic wasting disease in the States that it's not in right now. And, and there's been a lot of, um, not a lot, but the States where it's already been discovered, there's been some rules change. I mean, I know like South Carolina a couple of years ago implemented that if you're going to use deer scent, that has to be synthetic. You know, it can't be, uh, you know, real scent obtained from a real deer, this stuff like that. And they're just trying to be proactive. So I like that, Matt, thank you very much for coming on. I need to get you on again. I, I, you know, we just start talking. I got these kind of questions going, kind of deep diving into some deer biology. I love it. Where can people find you? So you can get me at matt at deerassociation.com. That's my email. Um, you can find me on um, Instagram. I'm there occasionally. And uh, I, I, you can call me. My information's on our, on our website, uh, deerassociation.com. Go to the staff page and you can shoot me an email if you want to do that. You can call me. I'm, I'm always happy to answer questions about uh, what people have about a deer's age. I get pictures of jawbones all the time from our members. <laughs> How old is this deer? Um, you know, those kinds of things. Kip Adams and I are actually going to be on next week. It's the 20th. I don't yeah. think this is going to really be released by then, but um, doing a deer aging uh, masterclass for on X hunt. Nice. Um, that's that's going to be really fun. That's one of the most common questions I get is either how old is this deer based on the trail camera picture or the jawbone? Yeah. Um, or what's wrong with this deer? You know, some kind <laughs> of ailment. Um, yeah. always happy to answer those kinds of questions. So feel awesome. free, free to reach out. Yeah. I have no shame. I, I'm holding I, right here at my desk. I've got a jawbone. Um, I brought this jawbone to whitetail weekend and I brought it, to I brought it out and I had, you, I'd showed it to you and Kip and Joe to try to uh, age it. So, Oh, I love um, it. I, love I, that I, I had, had it in my jacket pocket. No, uh, no shame there. Well, Matt, thank you for coming on. I greatly appreciate your time. Um, and uh, people follow Matt. He, he, he puts out some great content. Follow National Deer Association. If, if, if you're not a member, join. I mean, this is this podcast episode. This is exactly why you need to join for this kind of information. So, Matt, thank you very much for being on. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Mark. I look forward to the next round. Let's do it again. Let's do it. All right. I will uh, talk to you all next week. Have a good one. Be safe out there. <laughs>